Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Rio. Well, good morning. Once again, welcome to Community Christian Church. So great to have you here. We're right in the middle of this four-part series called Get in the Game. And the goal of the series is to fan into flame our Christian passion and in so doing, allow God to use us and empower us for his purpose. Let me say that again, because a lot of times, you know, sometimes we don't know why we're doing things or why we're teaching on a certain subject. We're teaching on the subject, and we use the, the catchy little brand of getting the game because it's the start of the football season, and a lot of people are thinking about football. But the goal of this series is to try and inspire our Christian passion and allowing God to use us and empower us for his purpose. And the key to that whole statement, that whole objective statement, comes at the very end of it. For his purpose. Not for our gain or for our desire, but rather for God. And that's what King David was commended for. And as you know, King David was a man after God's own heart. Recorded in the book of Acts, a thousand years after his reign, in Acts chapter 13 and verse 36, Paul the Apostle's talking about David, and he said, David served the purpose of God in his generation. Did you catch it? He served the purpose of God. He was all about what God wanted him to do. And just a few verses before that, in Acts chapter 13 and verse 22, Paul tells us that the reason God chose David over all of his brothers and everyone else is because by his own testimony, God said, David, I have found David to be a man who will do everything I want him to do. He will do everything I want him to do. He's not going to become king and then do everything he wants to do. He's not going to fixate on his own aspirations and dreams. Oh no, that was King Saul, the king before King David. King Saul was all about himself. If you read through uh, the, the books of history in the Old Testament, you find out that King Saul, even though he was a pretty special guy. I mean, he was a brilliant guy. The scripture says he was head and shoulders above all of his peers, but he had a little trouble doing things God's way. He refused to follow the advice of the prophet, and he just did what he wanted to do. And if we would be honest, we would have to conclude that that's our biggest challenge today, because we have our own hopes and dreams. And we all have families, and some of us are married, and we have jobs and careers and all kinds of personal interests. And sometimes this whole God purpose thing just gets in the way. I mean, come on, we're Christians, right? Right? right. We love God. We want to serve Him. We want to honor Him and have Him be pleased with our lives. But we also have a life, and life happens. And sometimes life doesn't really dictate us doing the things that God is encouraging us to do because we have our own plan. Now, do you remember what Jesus said about life 
during one of his famous parables, the parable of the sower. And if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Chris make reference to the same parable. There's a lot of truth in it. In Mark chapter 4 and verse 19, Jesus said, life can oftentimes be described as the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things. One more time. I mean, there's a lot to life. But Jesus said on occasion, life is like the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. And all of this, Jesus said, it can choke out the seed. It can choke out the seed that the sower is sowing, making the word of God, that's what the seed is in this parable, it's the word of God, making the word of God unfruitful or ineffective. And when the disciples heard Jesus tell this parable, they did the same thing that they did on many different occasions. They pulled them aside privately, and they said, Jesus, we need a little further clarification. And after he explained to them the whole parable, it was Simon Peter who kind of figured it out for himself that this thing called faith is an ongoing process. It never comes to an end. But it's something that needs our daily attention. His exact words in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, this is what he said. Make every effort to add to your faith. To do what to your faith? Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and then to goodness add knowledge, and then to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness love. For if you possess these qualities, all of what Peter just said, with increasing measure, what kind of measure? Not staying the same, you know, not digressing a little bit, But if you have these characteristics and qualities and these components operating in your life with increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective, unproductive, and unfruitful. In other words, these are the very things that make us spiritually productive. And it's all the things that we need to add to our faith on a regular basis. You see, faith is not just a one-time shot. You have to continually Fan into flame the faith that you have in your heart. And you have to add to your faith. And you have to work on your faith. And you have to exercise your faith. This is something that we do and have to do as believers on a regular basis. Now, listen to what the Bible says in Jude 3. Jude writing this epistle, he said, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, what did he want to write about? I was eager, I really wanted to write about the salvation that we share, but I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. The Amplified Version says, I felt compelled to appeal to you to fight strenuously for the faith. Now, according to tradition, Jude was the half-brother of Jesus. And just like James, another half-brother, Jude did not believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. It was when Jesus showed up at a family outing after he had died and everybody watched him die and now he's alive again that they started to take notice. And so his half-brothers like Jude and James, they said, I I guess mom was telling the truth. We We better believe that he's the Messiah. So Jude got saved. 
And right after he got saved, he said, I felt impressed with the Holy Spirit to write a letter to the churches. And what I really wanted to write about was my salvation story. I wanted to write out my testimony because it's a powerful testimony. He said, I lived with Jesus. I, 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 I knew him from the time that he was a boy. I grew up with him, and yet I rejected him. I rejected the Son of God, even though he was a member of my own household. But then, even though I, I rejected him, and even though I didn't believe him, there was still enough grace to save me. And it, it, it humbles me to know how much God loves me and how much he cares about me. And Jude says, that's such an emotional thing to me, right? I wanted to write about it. I wanted to send my testimony to you. But then, when I got some paper and a pen and I started to write it down, the Holy Spirit, you know, appealed to me and convinced me divinely to go in a different direction and to appeal to you to contend for the faith. He said, I laid aside this idea of writing out my testimony, and now I'm appealing to you to do everything that you possibly can to strenuously fight for your faith. Because, Jude said, there's some things in the world right now that can render your faith inactive. These things can neutralize your faith. And before you know it, or before you have a chance to recognize it, life happens and you're just going through the motions. And at times you may have been passionate, and at times you may have been on fire, and maybe you could describe your faith as one that was so pumped up and, and so ready, but now you're just kind of sitting back and letting it happen. So here's the million-dollar question for today. How do we follow Jews' advice? How do we strenuously fight or contend for the faith? And how do we add to our faith with increasing measure all of the components that Simon Peter encouraged us to do? How, how do we do that? Only one way. in the game. It's the only way. We have to get in the game. We have to be willing to suit up, get in uniform, and walk onto the field of play and allow God to use us and empower us for his purpose. You see, what matters to God is what should matter most to us. The purpose of God should be our purpose. What the Spirit of the Lord is saying to us should be the guidance that we're following. And the only way that we can possibly do that is to get in the game. Now, back in the 1800s when the West was being settled, who can tell me the major means of group transportation? Anyone? I'm going to help you out. All right, timing is everything. All right? It's the stagecoach, all right? And if you've ever watched a Western movie, chances are you've seen people riding around in a stagecoach. Anybody see that? A couple. All right. Very similar to air travel today, a stagecoach had three different tickets way back in the Old West days. There was a first-class ticket, a second-class ticket, and a third class ticket. That's to ride a stagecoach. 
You could go and you could buy one of three tickets. If you had a first class ticket on the stagecoach, that meant that you paid a little extra money and you were allowed to remain in your seat on the stagecoach for the entire duration of your trip. And so if there was any trouble, if uh, the stagecoach got stuck in the mud or needed to push up a steep hill or even if a wheel fell off, because you had your first class ticket, you could stay in your seat and you didn't have to move. Regardless of what you encountered, you could stay on the stagecoach in your seat. Now, the second class ticket holder, like the first class, could stay in their seat in the stagecoach until they ran into trouble. And whenever there was a problem of any kind, the second class stagecoach people, those that had tickets, second class tickets, they had to get off the stagecoach. They had to say, excuse me, to the first class people, and they exited the stagecoach. Now, once they were off the stagecoach, they could go for a walk. They could roll out a little blanket if they wanted to and have a seat. They could stand around and watch everybody else go to work. Second-class ticket holders did not have to get their hands dirty unless they wanted to. But then there were third-class ticket holders. And the third-class ticket holders were the ones to get out of their seats every single time there was a stagecoach hiccup of any kind. In fact, they were the first ones off of the stagecoach when there was a problem because it was the third-class ticket holder whose responsibility it was to solve all the problems. So included with their discounted ticket price was the acknowledgement and the understanding if there was a problem, they had to repair it. They had to fix it. If the stagecoach got stuck in the mud, they had to push it out. And you could always tell who the third-class ticket holders were because they were the ones covered in mud. Now, this may come as a surprise to you, especially since we do things a little differently here at Community Christian Church. We don't really fall into all of the snares that most churches do. But the kingdom of God these days, it's a lot like a stagecoach. Again, this happens at other churches. But some believers actually think they have first-class tickets. And for the most part, they're spectators. And they stay in their seats for the entire ride. They never get out of their seat. Again, nobody here. <laughs> Second-class ticket holders, what they do is a lot of standing around. You know, they, they get comfortable when there's a problem. They look at other people who are working. Uh, and they make the choice whether or not they want to get involved. And usually for a second-class ticket holder, it has to be an emergency. Or you have to guilt them into serving in order to get them to do anything. But thank God for the third-class ticket holders. They're the saints of God that immediately roll up their sleeves and at game time, they're on the field to play. And they're ready to work because their responsibility is to make sure that the stagecoach never stops. And they take care of all of the problems and all of the issues surrounding the community. 
You see, it's the third class ticket holders who contend for the faith. And you can always tell who they are because they have the grass-stained uniforms. They have the uniforms like that one before we saw, showed you that picture. They're working. They're in the game. They're doing all the necessary things that they have to do. But let me tell you, third-class ticket holders, they're the most fulfilled. They're the ones that have true meaning in life because they're not just involved in their own purpose. They're not just doing the thing they want to do. They're seeking the purpose of God. And they're all about what God wants them to do. Now, with this get-in-the-game illustration this morning, what I want to do is talk about the importance of the playbook. Say that, the playbook. Okay, we're using the illustration of a game, and if you're going to have a game, you have to have a playbook. It is impossible, virtually impossible, for any team member or team player to be effective on the field of play if you don't know how to run the plays. In football or any sport, really, a playbook is where managers and coaches list, keep, and categorize all of the strategies, the maneuvers and plays that are used during the game. And all of the team members should study and know and even memorize the playbook so that in the heat of competition, they can confidently execute the plays at a very high level. I mean, that's the only way that you can really know how to do your part is if you understand the playbook. Now, I want to show you a picture of the legendary Tom Brady. Right, he's the quarterback for the New England Patriots. And some people, scratch that, most people would say that he's probably the best quarterback that ever played football in the National Football League. And I have to admit, I saw him in action. He's pretty good. I hope he doesn't play that good tonight, but he's, he's, a, pretty good, he's a pretty good quarterback. All right. If you're a football fan, undoubtedly you've seen this picture over and over again during a football game. What is Tom Brady doing? That's right. He's looking up the next play on his wristband playbook. That's what's on his arm right there. It's a playbook. And after he has the play, he shares it with all the guys in the huddle. Or he goes up to the line and gives audible instructions if they're in a hurry-up offense. And that little wristband is a portable, sophisticated playbook. And when he calls out a number, everyone on the team should know what that play is like, what, how to operate and how to function with that play. Because every one of those plays on the wristband are numbered. Did you know that? They all have a number or a letter. Now, God has a playbook. It's called the Bible. And the Bible is where God gives us strategies. It's where he gives us the maneuvers so that we can operate as believers. And it's pretty comprehensive, his playbook. And check it out. All of his plays are numbered. In fact, play number 119, 105 from the book of Psalms. So Psalm 119, 105 says that God's word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. You never have to guess where you're going with God. He's always going to give you a little bit of light to help you make that next step. 
His playbook gives us guidance. His playbook gives us direction. His playbook gives us wisdom. And so his word to us gives us a direction that we need. Now, years and years ago, when I first got saved, when, when I was a, a really a, a young Christian, every morning before I left the house, I did this all the time, I would try to pull a verse of scripture from the Bible that was both instructional and inspirational. So I would grab one of the Bible verses wherever I was at, I'd read until something jumped out at me, and I would write it out on a piece of paper. I would write out the play number or the verse number, and then I would write out the verse itself, and I would keep that verse on me the whole day and look at it as often as I could, and in doing that, try to memorize it by the end of the day. Now, when I, used to, when I went to work, uh, before I was a pastor, I was a police officer, and I would bring that little verse with me, and I would tape it to the dashboard of the scout car. It would tape it right next to what was called the hot sheet. The hot sheet listed all of the stolen cars and all the cars to be on the lookout for in our precinct, those cars uh, in the city that were used in a, maybe in a felony. So there would be the hot sheet on the dashboard, and, and believe it or not, these were before in-car computers, the days before all that. So you actually had to go into the precinct station, find a piece of scotch tape or a pin, and pin it to the dashboard. And then right next to the hot sheet was my little verse of scripture. And I would read it. Every single time that I would look at the hot sheet, which was a couple hundred times a day, on patrol, I would glance at the hot sheet if I saw a license plate, and then right after I did that, I'd look at my Bible verse. And that Bible verse was always about protection, how the Lord protects us. It was about favor, how the Lord, he, he favors our hand, he orders our steps. And I would read that verse, the entire shift. Now, uh, some of my heathen uh, police partners, <laughs> those who were unsaved, uh, they were pretty critical of that little plan of mine. And so some of them uh, would tell me, take that down. I don't want that verse of scripture up on the dashboard. You know, this is a, a, you know, a, a scout car. Uh, we have a job to do. You keep your personal uh, life to yourself. Uh, put that somewhere else. So I would usually tape it to my ticket book which was mine, and I put the ticket book on the dashboard next to the hot sheet. <laughs> but you know, after a while, and you know, I could tell you story after story after story, but God began to favor me as a police officer. And, and, and he would help me to find uh, felony cars, and, and, I, and I had a really good track record of, of getting involved uh, with, with the stolen uh, rings, the stolen car rings. And, and the Lord was using me. I, I, I was able to make some good arrests. And so some of these partners came back to me and said, you know, why don't you tape your Bible verse right up there on the dashboard? <laughs> Go ahead. That'll be fine today. In fact, one police officer, a friend of mine, who uh, wasn't uh, a Christian, if I didn't put a verse up, he said, where's your verse? <laughs> he wanted to see it. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, that all scripture, how much? Every single Bible verse and play in the Bible is God-breathed or inspired by God. And it's useful. I love that word. It's useful. It's truth and good news 
you can use. You know, there's a lot of news today. You don't want to hear it. Shut it off. It's not worth anything. In the Bible, all of this God-inspired news is good news. It's useful. It's useful for instruction, for conviction, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So the woman of God and the man of God, all the team members may be thoroughly equipped and prepared for every good work. I believe that. I believe what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that every single Bible verse has been inspired by God, and it's valid for today. In fact, it's just as valuable today as it was when it was first inspired thousands of years ago. And we have it. It's our playbook. It's what God has given to us to get in the game and stay in the game. And so in the time remaining this morning, let's just talk a little bit about the Bible. This may be total review for some of you, but for others, maybe you'll find some of these things I'm going to tell you to be interesting. Worldwide, over 100 million Bibles are sold or given away every single year. How many? 100 million Bibles are sold or given away every single year. And the Bible is still the number one best-selling book of all time. Number one. An estimated 5 billion copies with a B. 5 billion copies of the Bible have been sold. Now, for comparison's sake, the best-selling non-religious book coming closest to the Bible is Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities. That book was first published in 1859 and has since sold about 200 million copies. It is the best-selling non-Christian book ever. 200 million copies. How many for the Bible? Five billion. Five billion. Now, many, many Christians today honor the Word of God. And they hold the Bible in high esteem. Uh, but they really don't know how the Bible came to be. And sometimes just understanding the origin of the Bible and taking the time to realize what God did to make sure that we have the Bible the way that he wanted us to have, that can add a brand new dimension of faith to a believer's life. You see, the writings which eventually were gathered together and became known as the Bible, they were written over a period of 1,600 years by more than 40 authors who lived on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And even though the scripture and the texts were penned by human hands, the spirit of the living God is the author. So the Bible that you hold in your hand, it was written not by men, but by God. God told men what to write. The spirit of the living God is the one who authored the Bible. And the Bible didn't just simply happen. It didn't, you know, there was a bunch of texts and they were all in one place and, you know, they fell out and they became a Bible. That's not what happened. It was preserved with divine effort. And you can trace and you can clearly see the hand of God throughout the entire process of the Bible coming together. Now, in the beginning for a little while, 
God communicated and spoke with people like Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham in his own way. We know that God had conversations with these people because it's listed in the Bible. The first mention we have of anybody writing down their conversations with God was by a man uh, by the name of Moses. Moses lived right around 1500 B.C. And he was the first one to write down the things that God told him to write down. In fact, the scripture tells us that he did that. We know that Moses wrote it down because the Bible tells us he wrote it down. And according to Jewish tradition, Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, was called the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all written by Moses. Now, those who oppose the Bible, those who would like to tell us that the Bible's not accurate, they scoff at the idea that Moses, a man who lived around uh, B.C. 1500, could write anything at all about creation. I mean, how did he know? How did he know what to write hundreds of years before he was even born? Well, how did Paul the Apostle know what to write about Jesus? Paul wrote a lot in the New Testament about the resurrection of Jesus and about the teachings of Jesus, probably never meeting him or having a relationship with him. He received it all by revelation of the Holy Spirit. And that's the way that Moses received it. See, the scripture is inspired by God. The Spirit of the Lord is the one who gave the ideas for men to write down. And the Spirit of the Lord had oversight of the entire Bible, a collection that first started in the Old Testament with 39 books, all compiled and preserved. These books contain Jewish history and, and culture and customs and traditions, along with the law and the prophets, so many prophecies that were given in those 39 books of the Old Testament that have been fulfilled. And the New Testament books uh, gradually came into being. The 27 books of the New Testament were written over a span of about 50 years, from A.D. 50 to A.D. 100. And content-wise, Paul wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament, or 13 out of the 27 books. And again, most of what he wrote, not all of it, but most of it he received by revelation. He told us that, you know, he had visions and the Spirit of the Lord spoke to him. He wasn't taught everything by the disciples. God gave him the ability to know things that he had no business knowing. There's no way he could have known it. So we see over and over again, not just the statement that the Bible is the inspired word of God, but the Bible itself, uh, it reinforces the things that I'm telling you. Now, once all of the 66 Bible, uh, books of the Bible came together, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, when they were divinely bundled together by the Holy Spirit, they went through a process of language translation. Okay, so we got all the books together, and some of them in our Hebrew, some are in Greek, and what happened is we began to translate those original manuscripts and text into different languages. And so for the sake of time this morning, let's just skip through a bunch of steps and let's shoot ahead to the 14th century. Because that's when we had a copy of the Bible in English for the very first time. A guy by the name of John Wycliffe spearheaded the project 
And the first English Bible was completed in 1384 A.D. Now, Wycliffe, he took his material from the Vulgate, which was the Latin uh, version. About 140 years later, uh, after that, in 1526, William Tyndale's work provided us with the first New Testament, first New Testament printed in the English language. And unlike Wycliffe's work, which he got from the Latin version or the Vulgate, Tyndale took his, or got his information from the original Hebrew and Greek texts. And some of you may know Tyndale was a brilliant, holy man of God. Gave his entire life with this project. And he was martyred for his faith. Martyred for the work that he did with the Bible. Now, after that, for the next century, there were several other notable English translation or version projects that prepared the way for the famous King James Version, completed in 1611. For that one, the King James Version, 47 scholars came together. And using the original text, they put together a Bible that held first place in the church for 300 years. Now, for those of you who absolutely love the King James Version, and you've been taught that the King James Version is really the only authorized version of the Bible, let me remind you that it came together in 1611, or 400 plus years ago. You know, sometimes we think that maybe the King James Version was the one Jesus signed. <laughs> you know, the only one that he endorsed. The only one that really we should be reading. The King James Version is a tremendous version of the Bible, no doubt. But keep in mind, it followed the process of translation like all of the rest. And with all the these and thous, it is extremely difficult to read it and understand it. And so that's why some of these other versions are important and they're needful. So over the past hundred years, some really good modern-day versions have been completed. I won't list them all, but I'm just going to give you a couple of them. The Amplified Standard Version, or the American Standard Version, uh, was written in 1901. Then came the Amplified Version in 1965. The New American Standard in 1971. In 1973, we had the New International Version, which is the Bible I typically read from during a message. And I want you to understand Again, for those of you who are King James Version diehards, I have a parallel Bible, and mostly for every verse of Scripture that I use in a, in a sermon, I will read that same verse in the King James Version for content. And if there's anything that I see that's a noticeable difference or, con or, or problem, I will explain it to you. So we got the, uh, the new uh, the, the, the NIV in 1973. Then in 1982, we got the new King James Version. And let me just say that people who love the King James Version don't even accept the new King James Version. <laughs> and all it does is take out the these and thous, make it sound like we're talking today. 1996 came the Living Bible. In 2002, a couple of different works, the New English Standard Version, also, the message, which is the New Testament only, and I, and I apologize if I'm not going to uh, you know, include your version, the one that you read. 
There's a lot of versions. I'm only listing a few. 2004 came the New Living Translation, which is a very good Bible. So you see, God had his hand in the coming together of the Bible. Uh, whatever you read or whatever research that you involve yourself in, I promise you that the product that we have today is the product the Spirit of God wanted us to have. And it's amazing because over the years, every contradiction has been resolved. There are no questions in the Bible that can't be answered unless they're questions that God uh, himself is the only one who can answer. And everything about the Bible in all books, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they all point the way to Jesus Christ. He's the one that we're following. He's the one that we exalt. He is our Lord and our Savior. And so a lot of people through the years gave up their entire lives to bring us the truth of God's word. They spent year after year after year making sure that we had a Bible in front of us that could teach us the truth. And like I mentioned earlier, William Tyndale, he was strangled to death and then burned at the stake, all because of his work with the scripture. You see, God's word is our playbook. You can't really get in the game without it. If you're going to know the plays, if you're going to try to run the plays, if you're going to even try to understand the game, you have to pay attention to the playbook. It keeps us in the game. It, it keeps us operating in the game. It's not enough, friend, just to come to church to hear a message or put on a podcast and listen to somebody else talk about the Word of God. That's, that's good. You know, when the Word of God is anointed, when the preached Word of God carries the anointing of the Holy Spirit, it can minister to our hearts and our souls. It can feed us. But it doesn't replace standing on the Word, trusting in it, living it, believing in it, and contending for it. That's the greatest testimony of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. It's a life of faith that reflects and models the truth of God's word. All right, let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we take just a couple of minutes right now and we thank you, Lord, for your word. Your word is quick. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It teaches how to live. It sustains us. It instructs us. It is useful. And Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the truth in your word. I thank you, Lord, that, Lord, we put a huge emphasis on what you say more than what anyone else says. It's not our opinion that counts. It's not our ideas. Holy Spirit of God, thank you for the inspirational truth that you delivered to us a long time ago. And we make a commitment, Lord God, to contend for our faith like never before.
Use these last couple of minutes, Lord, I pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.